welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spirits Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Liam Sunner, Assistant Lecturer at Maynooth University Department of Law. We will discuss his work on international trade agreements, human rights, and intellectual property. So welcome to the show, Liam. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Uh, this was a really interesting paper, and I hadn't thought about the sort of international law human rights uh, provisions in this context before. So it was really interesting to read. Uh, for listeners who might not be international law specialists, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between international trade agreements specifically and the human rights clauses that they sometimes or frequently include. When I was looking at this research, it was coming about uh... – it started originally looking at the TTP and the TTIP agreements, looking at how can you balance the competing interests of intellectual property with broader rights access of can you use copyright, can it be used fair use? And looking into that, and as the research happened, the agreements kind of stalled and then were uh, removed for, but well, their development was kind of just stopped for various reasons. But I was kind of the idea of, how does intellectual property kind of account for broader societal use? And it was kind of looking at the idea of what can you do with it? What there's always other bits of readings I was research I was doing. Was I was looking at the idea of the, what were exceptions for specifically for copyright of what can be used in the fair use for remixing, reusing, uh, reappropriation of material uh, for non-commercial use. But then the question was, what can you do for commercial use and how does that kind of link to trade agreements? And if it's a trade agreement, just how, how heavy is the trade component? And looking at the agreements, uh, I was looking at them from the conclusion of the TRIPS agreement, the standard the, the revision of TRIPS in, well, sorry, the creation of TRIPS in 1995, uh, where it came into force, setting the new standard for intellectual property uh, protection at the global level as part of the World Trade Organization and just how intellectual property was becoming a more prevalent part of trade. And part of this was looking back at, I always kind of assumed it was part of trade, just how intellectual property was talked about uh, as I began reading as of, kind of 10 years ago at this point. Uh, that was always there, but before it wasn't. And then just what was the shift? What was the inclusion of intellectual property and uh, how it what, how it was incorporated and how new protection was brought in to address new technology, uh, particularly early 2000s. Uh, I just remember my own experience of uh, getting being warm up with parents, like, don't download music off the internet, it's illegal. And just where does that actually come in and how the law addressed that and then how that updated and new technology was accounted for. But new exceptions were allowed, and that kind of got me on the track of how human rights concerns of what is fair use and how can fair use then be applied to, say, the right to education of a large amount of textbooks will say this can be used for private use or this can be photocopied for private use. And how can that be accounted for within that sphere of protecting intellectual property, protecting that expression of an idea or then moving to patents and trademarks, the more commercially focused aspect of how can you still allow broader use while adequately uh, protecting the intellectual property at hand. And that kind of snowballed into 
how does health work there? How does patterns work for generic medicine and uh, looking at how that has worked in relation to trips and the exception they had to write in uh, from the Doha round of uh, negotiations or revi- rather Doha revision rounds of the TRIPS agreement for generic medicines for global health epidemics, which kind of topical now. Uh, just how does that work? And that kind of snowball of how can you include human rights in uh, or human rights considerations of allowing fair use for education, allowing fair use for health, and looking at the ideas of breaking out what we are, what did I actually mean or what did I think meant by health? Was it always just you can make a, a generic uh, version of pharmaceutical goods, but how generic can you go? Is there a time limit? Uh, what are the requirements to do so? The fair use of access to material, how does that work in education? Is it for uh, innovation? And then looking as I went on, how does that apply to culture? How can you protect culture, but at the same time ensure culture can be used by anyone who can claim that culture as their own? And that kind of open up the idea of cultural appropriation and some of the areas of human rights uh further for me just looking at that idea of how can you provide protection how can you say who can use this idea this broad idea of culture who can claim it who can exploit it for in a positive or negative connotation and how can that be accounted for within these trade agreements mm. and as the trade agreements go on uh this this question kind of becomes more prominent becomes more prevalent as broader society has been made more aware of the stakes of intellectual property and the risks associated associated with overly stringent intellectual property protection. And the example that was on my mind was uh, protecting musicians in the early 2000s. Are you suing children or often teenagers for thousands of dollars because they downloaded one Metallica song? Where does the question of fairness and, and you know, they didn't know better they they were brought up in a culture where this was just the norm that you could just get songs off the internet but there was no stake uh but then not penalizing musicians who were losing revenue at the time and where does that tie in and how music in that, in that context relates to culture and can you use that music then or is it restricted that no one else can pl- then play this music and no one else can use this music and then that kind of went back into ideas of remixing music, reusing it, reappropriating it uh, in, a, in a positive sense of uh, stand, uh, classical standards. Can you reuse them? Can you recover? How does that work? And the, just really the question around access to the, idea, the ideas and can you still pr- protect them from the intellectual property perspective where they become a commodity, but also still allow access to them as ideas for and the difference between protection protective standards for protecting the idea for protecting the idea just from being abused and then protecting the idea where you have it as a commercial commodity and often the disconnect between the two or the rare times where there is a connection as a result of the human rights uh clauses within the various trade agreements of how they have to um uh, they force the trading partners of the various agreements. Uh, from my my perspective, I've looked at it from the EU and its trading partners, uh, and just how that differed, but how it kind of snowballs from one to the other, for some degree, and le- what lessons can be learned, what can be picked up or dropped if they're no longer functional at the desired level, and what happens when different member states, diff- different trading partners, have different ideas themselves. Can they? stand up to the EU effectively uh, or the, the larger trading partner uh, 
and say, no, this is, we need to keep culture open. We need to keep access to this, this aspect of intellectual property open, but we understand we have to protect this. And it's that little intersection of how it was really where it came from. Well, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more generally about the kind of traditional way we think of the relationship between trade agreements and human rights clauses. Because my sense from your paper was that usually human rights clauses seem to be used in order to obtain like political leverage over a trading partner that really needs the economic benefit from trade, but is maybe has some internal resistance to making uh, political reforms that would be consistent with you know, EU type human rights uh, principles. Is, is that like a common sort of dynamic in, in international trade agreements? In the ones I've been looking at, there is always a question of where is this human rights coming from? Why is it included? And from the EU perspective, the EU has the obligation to uh, promote and protect intellectual, pro- uh, sorry, promote and protect uh, human rights uh, as part of its overall agenda, both internally and externally. So it does have that obligation to, if unfortunately it's often the case, it may often be the case of just ticking the box saying we have considered human rights here. But they had that obligation. And as the EU went through the various treaty changes, it became more prominent because of the importance uh, and the political and social uh, awareness of protecting human rights. And it was put in there, it was put, but it was never, the EU was never given the competence or the actual power to mandate uh, its trading partners agree to uh, these terms uh, in, in, at the international trade level uh, due to internal politics of the EU and the member states of the European Union not wanting to give away too much power or be bound by the EU too much. And the, again, as you said, the political nature is there. Uh, but because of that, the, the agreements started to include a recognition or international trade has to recognise elements of human rights and try not to conflict with them. But it was never at the same level of pressure to match the protection sought for commercial elements of us. So in particular, the intellectual property sides, where there was a strong demand and a strong ability to for the EU to engage and demand the uh, protections for intellectual property at ever higher levels. But they had to then say, well, we also have to consider human rights, but we don't specify at the level. We don't we don't have to specify just how much we have to really get into it. But as long as we give some consideration, but then we can put a clause in later, say we can do so much with protection levels that the human rights concerns are still there, but they aren't really that effective in principle. And then that goes to the question of if they're there, can they still be called out? Can they still be relied upon? And this then goes to the idea of is it a one-way system that if a human rights clause is in the trade agreement and if there's a breach of human rights or the spirit of the human rights clause in relation to trade policy, will it always be uh, to a street who can call on that clause and say, look, you are actually in breach of your trade obligations, but you're also in breach of your international human rights obligations because you agreed to this clause in the trade agreement. And it was never the EU being called out upon that. So there was always a question of, it was just another tool for the EU politicking, the, for the economic pressure to put on, if you, to, so they could say to their weaker trader partners, if you don't agree, if you don't accept this term, if you don't uh, uphold the standard as we see, as we agreed, we can say you were in breach of your human rights concerns and the international political pressure that could bring to trading partners. 
Well, it's my understanding that there's kind of a neo-colonialist critique out there of some of these human rights clauses and how they're used. Could you talk about that a little bit, sort of where it's coming from, what the nature of the objection is, and sort of what kinds of clauses are people objecting to and why? Uh, yeah, I would agree. There is a neo-colonial element to it. And this partly can be traced to the actual foundation of the European Union itself, looking at the member states who made up the original six who founded the EU and then its expansion. They were European colonial powers. So there was always their international trade was colonial trade. And that rationale, that mentality, uh, whether it was depending on how you want to read it into it, it was it was always there that this is how it was done and there was that carrot and stick uh, approach that we are, it's not a colony any, in a direct sense anymore, but the power dynamic is so much between what would become the EU and some of its trading partners that they could, it was effectively agree to these terms or you don't get anything. And they were pushing in human rights concerns that were very much what the EU or what the EU and would become and what the EU considered to be the correct human rights approach. So there you have the uh, idea of the imposition of cultural norms as well um, and human rights norms from an external perspective uh, and a very Western approach to what what's good human rights and can we call out uh, our trading partners with this. But the other side of that was by including I'm kind of getting ahead of myself for with the issue of linking intellectual property there to these human rights clauses. You know, if you don't protect intellectual property, are you then not protecting your human rights? And they kind of use it, sometimes it was used as a backdoor to force trading partners, which may not have had the most uh, available resources to implement intellectual property protection standards. They could, they were forced, they were to do so, or could be forced to do so by claiming intellectual property was un, in the protection was part of the human rights concerns, the human rights clauses, and if they didn't uh, protect it adequately, they were could be in breach of their human rights obligations, and then that and the pressure and the the sanctions and the global uh, political influence of this country is in breach of human rights, while it's in relation to. Uh, trade, it's still seen as that they're, they're in breach of their human rights. And it was something that was brought up during the early days in the 1970s of the Loam Conventions between the European Union, or what it was the European Union, uh, but the African, Caribbean, and Pacific countries, or the ACP nations, where they were saying, this is what you're attempting to do. You're te- this is an attempt at new colonialism. And at, in the earlier days, they, could, they were rejecting uh, such a strong connection and use of human rights uh, with the EU trade policy because they were arguing that the, the EU will be able to use this as, or the EU could use this as uh, grounds for claiming human rights violations, but it was trade-related human rights. And it was something that was refused at the start, but as the EU became more economically powerful, it could throw its weight around and then mandate its trading partners accept these terms. It seems to me like there's a bit of a reversal when it comes to intellectual property related trade agreements as opposed to international trade agreements 
writ large with respect to the role that these human rights clauses might pay, play in relation to the economic uh, questions that are the primary sort of goal of the treaty. And so far as it seems like with most international trade agreements, the sort of power dynamic is the wealthier nation saying to the less wealthy nation, you can have access to these economic opportunities, but only if, among other things, you recognize these kind of political or normative obligations that we want to impose on you. By contrast, it seems like with the IP agreements on some level, the wealthier states are saying, hey, we want you to recognize these kind of economic interests that we have. And, and like sort of what role does human rights play there? It seems really it seems really different and maybe um, maybe kind of pulling the other direction in some sense of saying, you know, if these are economic, if intellectual property is an economic set of rights, shouldn't that be trumped by human rights to some level? It should. And I think part of that goes to, as I mentioned, the EU didn't have the, or and still doesn't have the competence to include stricter human rights enforcement mechanisms that they're saying the balancing of human right and intellectual property concerns coming from the EU is very much done at the internal level and then exported of how the EU has balanced its internal uh, question of how do we is this fair use? Is this access? How do we get right? So for example, right to health, right to access of education within the EU and the EU's uh, internal intellectual property protections, and then just exporting that standard. So in exporting the trade provision, the economic aspect, they are also bringing with it the effectively the, the pre-made answer. Uh, but it's a, it's the EU's pre-made answer that may not be the most applicable to certain members, certain trading partners, because they might not have uh, they might not view intellectual property as so important to their economic development, or they might have a very different view of how intellectual property actually works. And it's, it's that kind of connection there. It's the, even the connection between intellectual property and human rights is coming from the EU, but it's coming as a like a near often sometimes, and, and I found it may have come as like a pre-made answer for them. If that makes sense. Well, so maybe you could talk more specifically about how some of these intellectual property agreements actually work and sort of how they incorporate human rights elements to the extent that they do. The EU, the agreement between the EU and Chile from the early 2000s. Uh, And in this agreement, the preamble of the agreement uh, states that the parties will acknowledge the full commitment to the respect of democratic principles and fundamental human rights as set out in the Universal Declaration of of Human Rights and then given some weight under Article 1.1 of the agreement saying the EUDHR constitutes an essential element of the agreement. So that's kind of setting a trend where the agreements, the the trade focus agreements recognise the importance of uh, human rights and then discuss well, they're, they're, like, there are trade agreements there are uh, various forms of free trade agreement or association agreements or uh, economic partnership agreements they will say uh, human rights are important but we have that out of the way let's get into the trade and when they're talking about the trade they'll be talking about the trade protective provisions for intellectual property and often uh, increasing the standard beyond 
those found at the World Trade Organization and through the TRIPS agreement, which uh, at this point is 25 years old and possibly quite out of date. But they go f- for general terms of uh, the adequate and effective protection in accordance with the highest international standards. Uh, for example, that was in the EU-Chile agreement. Uh, and the language kind of works around, it doesn't contradict the importance, the stated importance of human rights in the, uh, at, the early, at the start of the agreements and in the preambles, but the provisions for protecting intellectual property are so much more comprehensive, so much more robust, that to follow the these express uh, obligations uh, in relation to trade and intellectual property, they have to do so by when they, by trying to balance the human right concerns, which are like, you have to acknowledge them. But we have such a strict application, a strict requirements for following intellectual property protection measures. They have to be given more weight, and that goes to the issue of why are they being given more weight? And partly, it's their trade. It's a trade agreement. It's what they're for. But then that raised the question of why was human rights why was there a human rights consideration at all if it's a trade agreement and it will be acknowledged but not much done with and this was something that was developed as the EU continued trading uh, through the late early thousands late two thousands this acknowledgement became quite stronger when it began to trade more with the South American countries and the South American countries including uh, and pushing for stronger reflections of the human rights concerns and, and effectively in part just restating them uh, where the the trade discussion was going to a chapter on intellectual property. They would include a general provision once again saying this has to be balanced against human rights. This has to reflect upon the broader social innovation and not quite saying you have to uh, allow for the the human rights concerns to trump over the uh, trade and economic base, but not not saying that as well at the same time. And they were kind of like I, I understand that they couldn't say human rights will trump trade in a trade agreement because I, I, I can't imagine any economically driven uh, trading partners would agree to that. Uh, but it was kind of pushing towards that language, and it was good to see that the EU. Uh, had accepted it, it was, and then because it had accepted it, it was rolling it out. It was continuing, uh, sometimes just copying and pasting agree- the agreements or the provisions of the agreements uh, when they're finally concluded. So there was a similar level of and similar language use of providing a strong consideration for human rights, while not the, expressly saying this has to always trump uh, economic concerns. Nearly going to a point and then stopping. Uh, in the early 2010s, mid-2010s, where trade had shifted from uh, to Canada, New Zealand, uh, Canada, Japan, and some of the other uh, countries that have viewed the importance of intellectual property uh, on a similar level to that of the EU, often part, part in part coming uh, from the aftermath of the TTIP agreement and the TPP agreement. Uh, and just this, that new standard that was existing, but still... As the EU had acknowledged and respected uh, human rights in its agreements with the South American countries, that was still kind of a lingering thought and included work where it could have been included. And it will be interesting to see where the next uh, couple of next generation of agreements, if you can call that, uh, in the 2010 and beyond, sorry, 2020s and beyond, where the EU is in a more prominent position as a global trade. Uh, how it can include these terms or if it is including these terms 
And one of the one of the areas for this would be quite interesting is in is the trade agreements between Australia and the EU. As one of the there was an agreement in the in I think ninety six ninety seven sorry about then where the EU and Australia had the guts of a, of a trade agreement completed. Australia was reje- was objecting on a few couple of grounds. One was in relation to uh, the UK and allowances for cattle, which now won't be an issue. But another was on the Australian recognition of human rights and the position of human rights within the agreement. That even in the mid-90s, it was quite mild, uh, but it was still enough for objection that this was not appropriate. And it was that question of why is there human rights in a trade agreement? And then that kind of goes to the idea of should it not just be in a human rights agreement? But to separate them so diversely and so strictly, would you have the same enforceability and the same weight and political weight to actually conclude a, a purely human rights agreement? Or is it better then to include the human rights concerns where you can in trade agreements because there's a motivation for concluding the trade agreements and that will bring the human rights concerns with us, whether it's at the desired level or not, is is it a stepping stone or is it making do is kind of a question I'm looking at. Well, so Liam, in, in closing, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this neocolonialism argument in relation to intellectual property uh, agreements. I wonder if you think it still holds against the human rights clauses in those treaties in the way that it might in relation to treaties or agreements relating to other broader forms of international trade? Or do you think the kind of salience is is different or maybe even um, reversed in some ways? I think in part, it will, that actually depends on who the trading partners are. Because uh, the trading agreements with the EU uh, conducted by the EU and its trading partners, if they can trade with a, someone who can effectively say no to them or we won't accept this, we'll accept this, but we want strong concessions. The question of neocolonialism there is not as prevalent, not to dismiss or say it's not, it doesn't happen, but uh, there is more of a, it's more, it's a balancing act rather than this is the, the EU often just demanding these terms from trading partners saying you can either get access to the EU market on these terms or you don't. And in doing so, they have that, they can impose stricter terms than the trading partners may be able to implement. And then if they can't implement them, there's a threat of sanctions for breaching, uh, not including these terms up to these adequate standards. And where you bring in intellectual property, there's an ongoing question of, is intellectual property itself a human right? And this is looking at, and then that's the question of, is the commercial element of intellectual property the same as the human rights element of intellectual property? And what, and from the colonial perspective, if they're conflated and wrongly conflated, uh, that the standards are the same, it can allow the EU to play to play the sanctions card for breaches of intellectual property, but not providing. To not protecting it to the adequate standard, and then claiming we're, there's a breach of human rights because the, the rights uh, of, let's say, the author, the rights of culture are at risk, even though it's really coming from an economic perspective of this is not being protected, intellectual property is not being protected to a level that we can commercially exploit it. And it's that level of that question of who the EU is actually negotiating with is kind of a large part of that. 
Well, Liam, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It was really, yeah, really great to talk to you about this fascinating question and learn more about international uh, intellectual property agreements. Thanks for having me on. That's right there, laddie. Keep getting that there music treasure. Nobody cares if you take it off the net, and besides, you ain't hurting no one. Cool. Just a couple more songs, and I'll have the whole CD. Hi, Corey. What you doing? Whoa! Where'd you uh, come from? Just hanging around, I guess. What's up? Well, I just downloaded some great music. I almost have the whole CD. But don't you know that downloading from an internet site without permission is illegal? You can get in a whole lot of trouble if someone catches you doing this. Yeah, but nobody's going to catch me. Besides, why do you care? Because the music you're copying belongs to me. Ah, don't listen to her, laddie. Just keep getting that there music treasure. No way, this is my CD now. I promised Joey I'd get him a copy of this music. Plus some cool software I saw. But I own the copyright to that music. Copyright? That means I have the right to make my own copy, right? No, it means that I'm the only one who can say how my songs can be reproduced. I don't lose my copyright just because someone buys one of my CDs. What you just did not only hurts me, but all the other people who helped produce my CD. You see, when people copy illegally, we don't get paid for all our hard work. Oh, I never really thought about it that way. I didn't know I was actually harming someone else. You're pretty smart, Margo. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got started in music and how you know so much about copyrights? Well, sure. In second grade, I started making up songs for just school projects and stuff. And after September 11th, I wrote a song called Imagine There's a World. It helped me raise donations for Afghan children. After that, I started writing songs about what was going on in my life. The music landed in the lap of a music producer and he helped me record my first album, Rising. I learned about copywriting when I wrote my first song. I filed a form for the copyright office, and they told me it helped protect my song from people trying to download it illegally or claim it as their own. Well, I have to go now, but please think about what you're doing next time you have the urge to copy something that you shouldn't. Bye. Ah, that's there, laddie. She's finally gone. Now let's get back to that music treasure. Hello? Hey, you got my CDs in it? Nope, can't do that now. But I got it. I'll get my mom to take us over to the music store in the mall. But Laddie, Laddie, it's free. I'll explain on the way to the mall. See ya. Better tell my big brother about this. There are many songs on the internet that are free and legal to download. Make sure that you only download from sites that give you permission. And also remember, it's just as wrong to steal songs on the internet as it is to shoplift from a store.